This is The Think Tank with Dr. Michael Neal, talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. A couple of most interesting guests this week. I think of them as two of the most important people in Arizona politics that you've probably never heard of. There's a story behind this, and I'm going to start out by telling you a little bit about the story. First of all, Arizona politics, uh, and, and, and these folks are transformative, potentially, of Arizona politics, but the background. Uh, generally speaking, Arizona voters have proven themselves to generally be moderate, maybe slightly right of center, but not all that much. Historically, by initiative, Arizona voters have regularly passed increased taxes for transportation and education, particularly when the goals of that uh, Taxation are clearly defined. We have passed political reform. We have an independent redistricting commission. We have clean elections, all passed by voters. We also passed an anti-dirty money campaign uh, initiative by overwhelming margins. Got it. Got thrown out by the courts. But just talking about where the public is coming from, uh, and uh, and these folks were largely responsible for that anti-voucher expansion that was uh, essentially. Uh, well, we'll have them talk about it, but it, but I think it's it's basically uh, run counter to the popular belief, which is absolutely true. The popular belief is, quote, Arizona is a conservative state. I think votes of the people suggest otherwise. Now, where's the myth of arch conservative state comes from? That has a basis, in fact, as well. And it's largely the composition of the Arizona legislature. Well, the legislature is arch conservative. Absolutely true. There's a reason for that, too. Reason number one is districting. And in, in the past, it, would, it could be attributed to gerrymandering. But what the Independent Redistricting Commission showed, and there's mathematical reasons for this, even redistricting done fairly has a very strong cons- uh, re- uh, Republican advantage. And the reason for that is quite simply that Democrats live physically in more concentrated numbers than Republicans do. If you go to South Phoenix, West Phoenix or something, you're into overwhelmingly Democratic areas. If you go out into some of the suburbs of Scottsdale or something like that, it tends Republican, but not by the same degree. What does that mean? If you have a state that's almost 50-50 Republican-Democrat, the even redistricting that's done honestly will have more Republican districts than Democratic districts. The Democratic districts will be very lopsided Democrat. The Republican districts will be closer to 50-50, but far enough away from 50-50 that Republicans can pretty much count on winning. It's a just a mathematical anomaly having to do with, frankly, a lot of it is race. That, that, that those heavily concentrated districts tend to be Hispanic and minority, tend to be Democratic, and it, it produces this phenomenon known as, quote, wasted vote. In other words, if you have a, if you have a 90-10 Democratic district, a Democrat is going to win. The Republicans' districts tend to be more like 60-40. 
those are also safe seat. You almost never, you never beat that. It, 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 there was an old adage uh, in some of these dead, uh, dead districts where you have somebody, a candidate has to be ta- uh, caught in bed with a live girl or a dead boy. Or I mean, no, it's the other way around. But anyway, basically, basically saying that this is district is so safe that nothing's going to get uh, nothing in in the normal course of events is going to uh, dislodge that. You have uh, the occasional exception that. Just back, for example, it was a congressional seat in the East Valley. Uh, was John Rhodes' seat later taken over by his son? He was involved in some uh, check kiting. It was a big congressional scandal, and they elected a Democrat, but predictably only one term. So they, there's an anomaly that kind of proves the rule rather than disproves it. So, so what is the upshot of which is that is that you're going to expect. Uh, The Republicans have been control of the legislature for roughly the last 50 years. I think they had a couple of years where they had a 50-50 tie. And uh, uh, Alfredo Gutierrez was was a minority leader at the time and was able to extract some some concessions out of Republicans. My favorite uh, term in old Arizona politics that was referred to as shopping in Alfredo's store. We, We had him on here once a few months ago. It was a lovely conversation. And we'll have him back. But uh, that's one of the so you have and the second thing that uh, accentuates this issue, particularly of an extreme conservative legislature, if you accept that the Republicans by just by the way the districts have been drawn and even as we say, honestly drawn districts are going to be about 17, 13 Republican and which is, by the way, I think what it's going, it's 16, 14 now. I think it's more likely than not going going back to 17, 13 this next uh, election. But the the second factor that comes to play here is primary elections. In primary elections, both parties tend to nominate the more extreme within their own party, in the Republican. And that matters more for Republicans. When you're in the minority, you're 13 out of 30. It kind of doesn't matter whether uh, a Democrat is moderate, liberal, or extreme level. They're basically going to get outvoted. So the Republican Party in Arizona, what happens in their primary is far more significant than the Democrat because they are in control. And it is, while it's there's a parallel thing going on on the Democratic side. On the Republican side, the voters in primaries tend to be the most ideologically extreme, and that favors the more ideologically extreme candidates. So you get a legislature. What's, what's all this mean? This is why we get a legislature that is not only Republican, it's way more conservative than the state as a whole. And it, which is the answer to the question, well, if this is such a moderate state, how come you're always electing Republicans? Well, the districts are drawn that way. And because of the phenomena of primary elections, you tend to elect not only Republicans, but it, it, it Republicans from the more extreme right. And you get legislation of a variety of ways that uh, that that are consistent with the views of the legislature, not the views of the people. And that's the divergent. That's also why that my earlier litany of uh, things that have passed by initiative, why those things have been largely counter. They basically were passed over the dead body of the legislature. They hate it. They don't like initiatives because the, the voters in general are pretty moderate. The legislature is pretty far 
hard right conservative, and they don't they don't like the kinds of things that have been passed by the people. The other thing that I think contributes to this, and there's a particular anomaly in the area of taxes, which is most people don't understand how regressive sales taxes are. And if you're trying to load up the taxes on to working people as opposed to wealthy people, you want higher sales taxes. We have the highest sales tax in the country. We have a relatively low income tax. And this wasn't just the legislature. These things were passed by initiative by people who wanted to fund something, whether that be education, whether that be uh, transportation, to take the two examples that have been most consistently used. The people who put those things together even in the case of education, knew that uh, a sales a one percent sales tax sounded more palatable to people. Even though, if you're making thirty thousand dollars a year, you're spending almost all of that, and almost all of that is going to be subject to sales tax. If you're making three hundred thousand dollars a year, you're not spending ten times as much. You're, you might spend twice as much. So that means sales tax is the most one of the most probably the most regressive tax there is in that it only gets money that you have to spend, uh, that people have to spend. So that's uh, the end result. Legislatures way to the right of the voters and the voters under the current scheme helpless to do very much about it. Now, this is where we will enter with our two guests after the break. And uh, their story is a real civics lesson, and we'll start with how they got in politics and what what happened, because these were not people that were especially uh, political. These were citizens who, well, what they did, we'll, 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 we'll ask them after the break when we return in just a moment in the Think Tank. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Well, I, I went went uh, altogether longer than I had uh, expected to or hoped to, but uh, I hope that set the context. Beth Lewis, you find you're a teacher. You find yourself down at the legislature. What got you there initially? We're talking 1917, I'm, or 2017. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I, it is dog years, but yeah. I'm not quite that old yet. <laughs> Hi, Mike. Hi. Um, yeah. So, you know, this was sort of the post-Trump election era where, you know, I think a lot of really strong, smart women started getting together and saying, you know, this man, Trump, this this is dangerous. You know, we have what we thought was a representative democracy that is in shambles. And how can we, the people, take back some of that power and make this state a better place? And so, you know, we all very quickly ascertained that the state legislature, which, quite frankly, we had not been following close enough. Like most was, folks. Right. Most folks was, have a vague notion of what occurs down there. Right. So. We realized that the state legislature was was really responsible for, you know, most of the things that were impacting our everyday lives, specifically our children, specifically education. And so a lot of us started attending education hearings, and it happened to be the year that Betsy DeVos and Special Interests, American Federation for Children, really, frankly, passed an overreaching bill. They passed universal vouchers. And um, for them, you know, that was pretty bad timing because we were all there paying attention. And we said, what is this? This seems really bad. Why are they trying to send all of our public taxpayer dollars into private schools that are unaccountable, unregulated? Um, They can be religious. They can discriminate against children. Like this is 
the undoing of our most democratic system, public schools. And then she was, you know, became Trump's secretary of education. And we started to realize that everything was connected. And and so I think we found our battle very quickly. And um, I'm really glad that we did. I have an image of uh, six of you sitting in the gallery of the legislature on signy die the last day. You want you want to Talk us through that, what that was like and what you heard and saw. Sharon, you were there? Sure, I was there. It was quite a day because we had watched this bill early in the session and thought that it was dead. But like many things in the Arizona legislature, it popped up right again at the end. Um, An amendment had been added to that to put um, a timeline on it. But it was clearly a very unpopular bill, very difficult to pass it, and... We had been the whole legislative session um, lobbying against it and really gaining a deeper understanding of just how much special interests were pushing education policy in Arizona. Who are the special interests you're talking about? So Betsy DeVos's American Federation for Children, um, the Americans for Prosperity, largely funded by the Koch brothers, our very own Goldwater Institute, um, drafted the legislation And Arizona is the state that came up with the workaround for what we now call empowerment scholarship accounts. It's a particular kind of voucher. Uh, But it was disheartening when we saw that bill uh, go through and pass. And so we quickly gathered. And at that point, I didn't really understand just how lucky we are in the state of Arizona as citizens to have the opportunity to refer bills to the ballot. So uh, we did lots of Googling and lots of talking to people who knew more than we did and and made the decision that we would uh, refer that voucher expansion bill to the ballot in 2018. And my recall is there were actually six of you who did this, right? Yep, the co-founders. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, we we managed to grow our network very, very quickly because, you know, teachers and parents around the state were just horrified when they heard what was happening. All educators and all women. Mostly, yes. Mostly. <laughs> I'm talking about the original six. Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, well, I, I remember this, you know, a lot of us had this discussion. Oh, these folks are going to do an initiative. Well, how much money do they have? None. How many signatures did you need? Uh, it was around 75,000. We turned in 111,000. And, mm-hmm. you know, because we're all teachers, <laughs> many of us are teachers, the validity rate was so high. Uh, well, so I remember that. people thought that wasn't yeah. enough I remember of a cushion, that. Everybody, you know? all, the, all the smart folks were saying, uh, well, they, they, they didn't hire, quote, professional, you mm-hmm. know, and of course, you know, your average professional uh, petition passer is a street person. This is not, they're, they're often paid, uh, with, you know, uh, or I think they've outlawed that now by the signature or something mm-hmm. like that, but, but it's essentially... Not a pool consistent with getting everything done. Their their uh, incentives are all wrong. The people are wrong, and yeah. you know. And that's a great thing about having volunteers, and especially volunteers who are teachers, retired teachers, parents. Yeah. They uh, f- you know follow the rules, listen to the rules. They got great valid signatures all over the state for us. Well, they comprehend that we don't need signatures. We need valid signatures. Yeah, right. Bad because they signatures. care. Exactly. It's a passion I, I think project. it was the, I think the Secretary of State said it was the cleanest uh, mm-hmm. yeah. set of petitions that they had ever had. What was your validity rate? Was 87% which statewide. Is, yeah. I think, uh, what's the norm about 67 or mm-hmm. something like that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Average. You're way over the top. Yeah. 
And yeah, and that was that was an easy sell, right? Because people were, realized what was happening very quickly, and everybody just wanted to get involved. And we're seeing that again, you know, now. And, and this was a referral. Let me make a distinction, not an initiative. Right. A referral means that you don't like some law that has been passed, and you're saying, "Hey, wait a minute." Let the people vote on that. And even though it's 75,000 signatures, which is a lot, it's nowhere near what you need for an initiative. Correct. Correct. And, uh, you know, how I, I remember just the arithmetic said, well, that's just everybody said that's daunting. And then 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 it kind of hit me when you how many volunteers did you have? Thousands. Yeah. And you have thousands of volunteers. You need 75. You start to do Mm -hmm. you start to do the arithmetic and say, if you've got that many volunteers, that means each person needs dozens of signatures, not hundreds of signatures. Right. It's something that special interests can't buy. It's real people. It's the power of the people. Yeah. And I I think uh, social media probably played a role in that. It didn't create your ability to do it. You had to be concerned, but it was uh, it greased the wheels. Your point? Yeah, absolutely. But we had to build up from zero. So we, when we started, we had no logo. We had no name. We had no Facebook followers. We didn't even know what Twitter was, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And so we had to build up from nothing. And now we have 20,000 followers and, you know, hundreds of thousands of names on our email list because real, genuine Arizonans care about public education. In other words, this next time around, you don't start from zero. That's right. So, so it gets easier. So. Um, we will return in, in a little bit here, uh, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, what has transpired since then. In fact, we'll, I mean, you know, the whole, we'll go back, even the whole history was, was really interesting. You were the folks who delivered 50,000 uh, uh, folks in front of the legislature, got their attention. Uh, the governor was in here one day saying, you know, we haven't got money for more than 1%. And then he's in here in this studio the next day. He'd say, oh, we came up with 20%. We'll be back <laughs> in a moment talking about citizen activism in the Think Tank. The Think Tank. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We are back with Beth Lewis and Sharon Kirsch, who are educators Citizens, activists, and uh, we were talking about the uh, evolution of Red for Ed, Save Our Schools, uh, the relationship between those. I've never been 100% clear. You can clear that up it's in terms of telling a story. Uh, we're now, we've gotten past, uh, it's 2017, and uh, uh, you're unhappy with what you've seen the legislature just pass. First of all, you want to tell us what a striker amendment is? <laughs> This is a little piece of dirty inner inner stuff that. Uh, well, that one wasn't this, but did sorry? Uh, did you want to yeah. talk about well? Well, striker amendments <laughs> happen all the time in the legislature. They just sort of clear out a bill and put in whatever they want. So in other words, you can out. have a bill about traffic safety, right? That has passed through committees. Right. And normally you, 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 the old civics thing, how, how a bill becomes a law, it gets referred to committee, you get hearing, you get testimony, and it finally gets passed by committee. Then it goes to the whole legislature. What a striker is, you take that piece of paper with this traffic safety thing and you wipe all the words off right. it. It's like you wash it in, you know, in, in dissolving ink or something like that. And you put new words on there about a completely unrelated subject. You bypass the entire process and then you just go straight to a vote. 
It's yep. what a legislative leadership can do if they want to do something that they don't particularly want to the public to hear about, think about, or resonate in the papers for weeks since it's all done as late as the last evening of a session. And I think it's things like that that make it so important to um, help the people in the state, just the regular people. And we at Saver Schools Arizona know that the vast majority of people across the state, regardless of their political parties, support Mm -hmm. public education and really want good, strong public schools in their neighborhoods. And so when the voucher bill passed um, in 2017 and, and then went to the ballot as no on Prop 305 in 2018, it was amazing to see so many people learn about what was happening, get angry about what was happening to our public schools, and then find a way to take action. So you get 150,000 signatures, it goes to a vote, and you won by? Uh, two to one margin. Two so one. We're going back to kind of the story. So, mm-hmm. you know, once we turned in those signatures, um, that was May, sorry, August of 2017. So then we had a legislative session beginning that January. And so we essentially started running that campaign the second we turned in signatures because we didn't have money and we knew we were going to be up against powerful special interests in 2018 on the ballot. Um, So we created a big march to save our schools, which was the day before legislative session started um, in January of 2018. I remember Governor Ducey was inside practicing his state of the state speech while 5,000 people were outside the Capitol uh, talking about the importance of public education and and marching. Um, And that sort of, you know, all of this really allowed us to educate Arizona citizens about the fact that we were 50th in education funding, that teacher salary was at an all-time low, Mm -hmm. and that our kids, our classrooms were in crisis and our kids weren't getting what they needed. Um, and so Governor Ducey started that session, you know, really on his thrown from his back foot. I mean, he knew the entire public was against him. And, um, you know, to your point, I mean, there were all sorts of striker bills, bad education bills, but they really didn't go far because, um, you know, at the time, everybody was paying attention to public education. And that led to the Red for Red movement, which, you know, built upon our march. There was a rally with, I think, 7,000 people. And then that, you know, the momentum built and more and more educators got involved, more and more parents got involved. And, um, you know, that was educator led and an amazing movement. And we had sort of the community support built in from our work. Um, And so we saw the Red for Red movement in April of 2018. And, you know, at that point, obviously, 75,000 educators and parents walked onto the Capitol. So Governor Ducey wasn't able to, you know, pull as many shenanigans, striker bills, Mm -hmm. all of the things that we typically see that session. And because you're watching. Yeah. (laughs) we And we were there. We were present. And then, you know, obviously the 2018 election happened and, and a lot of folks have credited our work to a lot of the electoral shifts that happened in 2018. Mm-hmm. Sure. You're bringing out people who are supporters of education and uh, they are a, they include some new voters that alters the calculus, which, of course, the legislature is very aware of it. And I think it's one of the sort of hammers you hold over their head, which is if you're going on with an, a, an initiative that is very popular and is going to draw out people who don't like what they're doing. This is trouble for one's uh, political career. Absolutely. And we, you know, even with the referendum on the flat tax last year, you know, we've been involved with... um, Yeah, explain uh, that a little little bit and what you did. Well, yeah. I mean, once we 
overwhelmingly rejected vouchers in 2018. We got involved with Invest in Arizona and the movement to pass what eventually became Prop 208. And, you know, that was a huge, massive uprising to fund our schools. Now, that hasn't really been brought to fruition, but, you know, well, people essentially, have fought very you, you, hard. If I recall correctly, you won the vote and then the court right. tossed it out. And then the yes. courts tossed and, it and out. you won it by a decent amount, didn't you? It was a- about 51%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because well, special interests fought it, you yeah. know, tooth and nail and spent $10 million in Arizona mm-hmm. in order to not fund our children because mm-hmm. that's the situation we're in in Arizona. It's when when you really think about it, it's absolutely insane. Um and so after that point, you know, we we were able to turn in signatures for a referendum last summer to stop the flat tax, which was going to, you know, siphoning money out of our classrooms mm-hmm. and other public goods. And the courts tossed that out, too. I think it's important. Sharon talked about, um, you know, the original voucher workaround. The key architect of the original voucher workaround to defund public schools is now a member of our our Supreme Court, Clint Bullock. And his wife is a lawmaker who, you know, profits off of vouch. She has a voucher company. So, you know, it's very incestuous and, and special interests are clearly running our state when it comes to defunding education. Well, and the bill that we're currently referring to the ballot couldn't the universal voucher expansion couldn't get a hearing in the education committee. And so it was sent to the Ways and Means Committee, which is chaired by Shauna Bullock. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it's again, I think that speaks to all these kind of shenanigans that happen behind the scenes. Um, Just to me, if I could, just to make sure people understand what you just said. Okay, this is one of the power of a legislative leader. It normally would go to education. There's hostility to the bill in education, so you send it somewhere where it will get a bid or hearing. The same thing yes. can be used to kill bills. Yep. If you ha- if there's a bill that's popular but the leadership doesn't want it, they send it somewhere where n- they know it will go no further. So that the immense power of the people who may, and that's legislative leadership. Exactly. So. Not to interrupt your point. No, I, that's, I just want to make sure people. That's a good fine what, point what, to put what, on it yeah. for sure. Because, and I think it speaks to uh, just how unpopular ESA vouchers are in among the regular mm-hmm. folks in Arizona, and the fact that we shot down um, in Prop three hundred five that voucher expansion by a two to one margin. Um, vouchers are not popular in this state. Well, the argument is, oh, this is, answer, would you, the argument, the, the proponents say, well, this is school choice. Choice is a good word, usually. Right? Yeah, I mean, it yeah. pulls well until voters are educated about what that actually means. Mm-hmm. And the reality is it's typically the school's choice. The school is the one doing the choosing when you're talking about private school vouchers. Arizona has abundant amounts of choice, right? We have open enrollment. Kids can, you know, leave their zip code and go to any school they wish to enroll in. We have charter schools. We have magnet schools. We have Montessori schools that are publicly funded. I mean, you can, any choice you want to make, you can make, but there's oversight of those funds, right? Even in terms of charters, in terms of all of the, the options I just listed, public taxpayer dollars have oversight. There's no religion being taught in those schools, and those schools are not legally allowed to discriminate. Now, when you're talking about a voucher, none of that is true. Can you explain to me, I, I've gotten confused by this because I think the definition has shifted. What's the difference between a private school and a charter school? 
That's a great question. So in Arizona, in the state of Arizona, our charter schools are public schools. They are funded by public dollars. And private schools are private. They are funded by private or we wish that they were only funded by private dollars, but the empowerment scholarship account vouchers can be used um, to fund private school tuition. Uh, two, two questions about that. Okay, if a charter school is a public school, what makes it different from other public schools? So it's privately operated. So that's the difference. It's publicly funded, privately operated. And, you know, we'll be the first to say that we wish that there was more transparency and accountability of charter schools. We would like to even the playing field. But in terms of oversight, I mean, charter schools have plenty of oversight. We do know how those kids are performing academically. They take the standardized tests. We do know what those operators are doing with their finances. And that's why you see charters shut down because the bad actors are shut down by the charter board. Sometimes not as as quickly as we would like. And sometimes it comes at a huge loss to the public because you can see hundreds of millions of dollars being wasted and, and we're never able to recoup that back into the system. But with private schools, there is no oversight. Nobody from the state is ever going to say, well, you're discriminating against kids, so we're shutting you down. Because you're a private we're, school, you're entitled to do it like a private company. You can company. do whatever you, you want. You basically do what you want. You get want. to pick your students. You get to pick your curriculum. It doesn't have to be accredited. You don't have to hire teachers that have any experience, much less credentials. You don't have to hire a principal that has experience, much less credentials. Mm-hmm. We have no way of knowing if students are even safe, if the mm-hmm. adults that they're around are appropriate. Um, Mm -hmm. There is no local school board that's democratically elected to ensure that all of those things are true. And there's no recourse to get those dollars back when and if that school decides to shut down in the middle of the school year. And even some of the uh, very successful private schools that I've seen um, have the ability to cherry pick students. And you Mm -hmm. you look at, well, even in one case, I know know because I interviewed a graduating senior who's applying to an elite college. And and he basically said the modus operandi is the ninth grade. They sit you down and they tell you how much work the next three years is going to be. And unless, and they say, unless you're willing to, you know, work nights and weekends and everything and really you, you probably should go somewhere else so they what do they end up with is a cherry picked group of students where everybody is maximally motivated guess what of course they do real well you know, right. the, the problem in most um attempts to assess the quality of education is they don't have what uh, an experimental design person would say is a legitimate valid control group you know where you have two equivalent and it's not just you can't just match on demographics or race or income or anything else because if one pool has highly motivated kids with motivated parents and everything else is the same they're going to do better well, uh, and, and we're not talking about building, you know, nobody's going to build 200 brophies. Everybody mm-hmm. thinks of brophy when they think of a private mm-hmm. school. The reality is anybody can open up a private school called Kids Are Us in a strip mall, mm-hmm. stick a kid in front of a Chromebook, give them a plaid skirt and say, you're in private school now. And the parents don't have any idea if the kids are succeeding, right? I mean, mm-hmm. as I'm a parent, I have two kids. They're going into fourth and fifth grade. I have a general sense of like kind of what they're learning. But, you know, until I see those test scores, I don't really know. No, I mean even grades are arbitrary, right? And 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 frankly, 
most parents aren't educators, don't know, and can be subject to successful marketing campaigns. Right. Well, and the mm-hmm. other really dangerous piece that we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about is the fact that Charlie Kirk is opening up Turning Point Academy in Arizona. So Turning Point USA is, you know, a vile, extreme right, um, you know, group that promotes racist ideas, homophobic ideas, hateful ideology. They're opening up a campus in Glendale. And according to the Newsweek article, they were saying that they want to proliferate campuses all over the state and then the country. If they can recoup $7,000 per kid just for one campus in Glendale, we'll be giving $4 million to Charlie Kirk. We'll pick this up and we'll we'll ask uh, our guests where they go from here when we return in the Think Tank. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're back with Sharon Kirsch and Beth Lewis of uh, Save Our Schools, Arizona. All right. We're the weekend before primary. What's going on right now, Sharon? Well, so here we go again. So just like uh, in 2018, when we said no to universal voucher expansion, the legislature passed just a month ago the most expansive universal voucher program in the country. And so once again, Save Our Schools has mobilized to refer that bill to the ballot. So we need 118,000 signatures uh, by September 24th to get this bill on the ballot. And it will go to voters in uh, 2024, the 2024 ballot, because we can't get everything done for the ballot this fall. But if it gets certified, it's held in abeyance. Yes. So So the law will be enjoined and it will not go into effect. Uh, It needs to be enjoined because if it's not, um, this is such an expansive program that all the kids in Arizona who are currently in private school would immediately get about $7,000 from the state of Arizona. And so that's net loss to state because those are kids that are already not in public schools and all of a sudden, how much money is that? Uh, Almost half a billion dollars. Whoa. Yeah. And that's not funding new kids to leave the public. That's that's a half billion dollars of basically subsidy of existing private schools. Exactly. Plus homeschool Families uh, can also get vouchers. Kids who are being um, educated in learning pods like micro schools can also get vouchers. Um, And it would have such a devastating impact on our public schools, which are already hurting. They did get some additional funding this legislative session. Um, But it's almost as if that additional funding is immediately drained out of the bucket by this uh, ESA voucher program. So we really need to stop it. And we are, this time around, we know what we're doing. So in one week, we got 9,000 petitions out in the field. We're training our circulators. um, And we are wholly focused on making sure that we'll stop this. Explain to me the homeschool thing. So some random parent decides, oh, I want to teach my kids at homeschool. Or maybe I just want $7,000 a year. What accountability is there for, for, for that money? Um, So homeschool parents sign an affidavit and they attest that they will teach certain subjects um, and and some of those kids take state testing, but they don't have to by any means. Um, They go to district schools for any sort of special education testing required. They often play sports at the local public school. They can check out books. They can um, essentially use a lot of the services that those taxpayer dollars are 
paying for. And the schools get anything mm-hmm. for that? The schools do not. Um, but this would directly subtract $7,000 for each of those homeschooled kids. So let's just say a mom has five kids in public schools and she wants to keep them home. That's $35,000 immediately. And, you know, if you think about it, that's an entire teacher at a school. So for your family to get to do, you know, what you want with unaccredited curriculum, teaching whatever you want, the school, the local school, loses an entire teacher. Now, they, they sign an affidavit that says, what, I spent the money on education? Yeah, so the voucher for homeschool does go through Class Wallet, and so there are some limitations on what can be you know, spent. But right now we're seeing expenditures approved for things like snow cone machines and bouncy houses and you know terrariums. And um, I recently saw visits to SeaWorld. And so these are all sorts of things that as a public school teacher, I have to fundraise for. I have to beg the PTO for. Mm -hmm. I have to go to federal grants. Donors choose. This is not something where I can just turn around or I have to spend my own money. And that I mean, honestly, that's what happens. Teachers spend out of their own pockets. And, you know, some of this homeschool curriculum is incredibly dangerous. There's curriculum from Bob Jones University, Abika. It's all creationism. It's Actually, some of it is really scary stuff, and some of it is just non-scientific and not accurate. And, you know, to say that you're teaching science and saying that the world was created 6,000 years ago is just it's not, not based on empirical no. evidence. Yep. Yeah. Um, and it, I, I think it's, it's pretty scary that we'd be using public taxpayer dollars for that kind of curriculum. So what else? What, what's on your agenda for the next... Well, we're folding in our incredible field plan to elect pro-public education candidates. So, you know, that's something that we've been working on for a year now, and we're definitely not giving up any of our efforts. Instead, we're having all of the candidates and volunteers who are canvassing fold in signature collection as well. Um, And so the beauty there is that we are active in the primary on Tuesday, and we are looking to voters to vote for pro-public education candidates in, you know, up and down the ballot. And we were able to help um, school board candidates who are pro-public education gather signatures all around the state. So, you know, that's something that's totally new for us. We've never done that before. We've never gotten involved that early. And what I think you'll see is that we have we're going to have much better school boards this time around, better legislative candidates. We got involved and helped get signatures for better candidates who are going to be in the primary on Tuesday. So we really encourage everybody to vote on Tuesday. Um, if you haven't, if you have a mail-in ballot and you didn't put it in the mail last week, then you need to bring it to a voting center on Tuesday to make your vote count. And I've noticed that in terms of your capacity, you personally have done this as volunteer extra activity in addition to being a full-time teacher, uh, but that may be about to change. Yeah, I'm very exciting. I'm, I received a grant to be able to go full time for Save Our Schools for a couple of years. I'm not out of the classroom permanently. It's it's my passion and my favorite thing in the world to do. But I think uh, giving Save Our Schools my full attention just is really helpful to every kid in the state and every teacher in the state. So I'm really proud and honored to do the work. And I understand it's not just you. It's a staff of three. Yep. It's being yeah. funded for how, how long do you have? couple of years. couple of yeah. years. So that's serious, serious investment. And, uh, well, uh, I'm sure you'll be heard from, from more. So uh, we are two days before uh, primary election, uh, it, which will be this Tuesday. Uh, I think the thing we all can agree on is that uh, you ought to vote. Yes. Yep. <laughs>
Last thought. You got a couple of seconds there. Well, I hope that everybody who cares about public schools across the state of Arizona will help us uh, circulate petitions. You can go to teamsosarizona.com. Okay. And if you want to reach me, the website is mikeoneal.org, and there's a vehicle there to reach me by email or public, uh, the usual social media. And we will see you next week in the Think Tank.